0: Well, it's good to see everyone this morning, if you will get your Bibles uh, or your phones or however you look at God's Word, if you would get that out, and uh, if you're busy with us, we are going verse by verse to the Gospel of John. We just began it uh, earlier this summer, and we are still in chapter 1, but it's a great and exciting study for us as we look at John's account of the glories of Christ and the Wonderful truths about Christ that we glean from this great gospel. John chapter 1, we're going to look at uh, this morning, verses 19 and following, part 2. You recall that John starts out his gospel with what is called a prologue. He basically states his thesis at the very beginning of the book. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in human flesh. You see that in verse 1. You see that in verse 14. The Word became flesh. That's John's thesis. Now 19 and following all the way to the end of the book, the purpose is going to be to prove that thesis. That Jesus is God. That Jesus is equal to God. That he is God in human flesh. It's a very important doctrine that you understand. It's a very important truth that we grasp. This is not just a man. This is the God man. God in human flesh. He lays that out in those first 18 verses. And then you come to Um, Like I said, verse 14, and the Word sums it all up, and the Word was, the eternal Word became flesh. In verses 6 and 7, he mentions John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified about the Word, the eternal Word. Testified. He gave a defense about it. He gave a testimony about it. You see down in verse 15, John the Baptist testified about the Word, about the Word made flesh. John the Baptist has a testimony. He has a defense about it. He has something to say about it, to attest to it that Jesus is God. And that's what we're in in verses 19 and following this morning. Look at verse 19, the testimony of John the Baptist. I've got a. He testified about it. This is his testimony. That is what you must realize as we look at these 19, excuse me, 19 through 34. This is John's confirmation about who Christ is. In MacArthur's commentary, he gives some points here I think are really good. I, I just want to try to summarize something he says why John was a good choice. Why John was a good choice to start with in your. Uh, defending or your presentation of Jesus is the son of God and that by believing in him you might have life that's the purpose of the book why is John a good one to start with if that's going to be where you're headed he says one of the things he says is because John was a prophet John is the only prophet in Israel 400 years nobody has spoken words for God Nobody has made the claim to be a prophet and proven to be a prophet. John is a prophet. John is credible. John is credible. He has, the, he has an audience of people all through Israel who believe 14 and 17 of Matthew say they, they were flocking to him because they knew he was a prophet. They believed him to be a prophet. He's credible. He's credible in the eyes of people. He's a credible Source. He's a credible preacher. He's believable. He's a witness to the person of Christ. Another thing that comes out in that commentary about John the Baptist is that he has no ordinary family background. He was born into a priest family. Priests were highly revered in Jewish culture, in Jewish society. His father was a priest. John himself could have been a priest. But he went a different route into the wilderness. Point is, he, he was born with, with a, a mother who was barren, from a mother who was barren, and God miraculously opened her womb, and John the Baptist was prophesied to his parents that John the Baptist would be one who would come making a way or being the forerunner to the Messiah. He would be the one, the angel told Zacharias, that will turn the hearts of the people back to God. And a third thing about John the Baptist is that he was outside of Judaism in terms of the the temple activities and things like that. John the Baptist was alien to the religious system. John the Baptist was not educated in their schools. He was not taught by their rabbis. He simply went into the wilderness and stayed there for 30 years. And he was like a hermit, wearing clothing of camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. And it's interesting when the first religious leaders do come to see him, we're told in Matthew, um, In the book of Matthew, Matthew's account in Matthew chapter three, when the religious leaders come to see John because his popularity is starting to grow. In Matthew chapter three, he calls them you brood of vipers. Who told you about the wrath to come? Who told you about escaping the wrath to come? He calls the religious leaders of Israel in that particular scene brood of vipers, brood of snakes. Not a great way to gain get friends, no doubt about it. Not a great way to be popular in the eyes of of religious leadership of the of, of the Jewish world. Calling them a brood of vipers, you're like snakes. You you deceive. You just kind of slither around and you deceive people. Just like the snake in the garden. Deception. And so he calls them that. So he's not trying to win points. He's not trying to be tied into the religious system. He doesn't care about all of that. Uh, and, and this is the man that John, in John chapter 1, puts forth as the first one to testify, the first testimony to give about affirming who Christ is. So you need to look at verses 19 through 34 that way. This is an affirmation, an attestation to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, you see that in verse 34. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That's what He's doing. And He's credible. He's very credible. The last time I introduced to you the first beginning verses of this, we'll try to finish this up this morning, but you recall in there are two questions that are being asked by these religious leaders. Notice them in verse 19. These religious leaders, these Jews come out to the area known as Bethany beyond the Jordan where John is baptizing. He's, this is not the writer of the gospel now. We're talking about John the Baptist. John the baptizer. John the immerser. That's what the word means. He's out in the wilderness baptizing people. People are flocking to him. There's great concern. Is this guy a, a false messiah? Is this guy who is stirring up the people going to cause some kind of insurrection or, or something like that? I mean, they're religious leaders. They're concerned about that. It's legitimate concern. And they go, we told them, verse 19. They're, they're sent, uh, the Jews <coughs> sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him some questions. Keep in mind, this whole scene happens 40 days after Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. This happens 40 days after Jesus himself is baptized. In this testimony, John John the Baptist is looking back at the event. The event happened 40 days prior to what's being said here in this account, they ask two questions, and the whole point of this is built around these two questions. Number one, who are you? And number two, why are you baptizing? Two questions. You see the first question in verse 15, who are you? The answer, I'm not the Christ. That's who you thought I was. I'm not the Christ. He denies it strongly. Then they say, Who are you? Are you one of these other prophesied individuals? Like, notice verse 21, like Elijah, like the prophet. I am not, he says. Verse 22, who are you then that we may give an answer to those who sent us? You see that in verse 22. What do you say about yourself? He says, I am a voice. He does not say, Oh, I'm John, son of Zacharias, of the priestly family of Zacharias. I'm John who has a great diet going. I'm John who has a lot of people following me. I'm John, nothing about John. John, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I am the one that Isaiah spoke spoke of. I'm not the Elijah of Malachi. I'm Elijah-like. He doesn't say those words, but that's what you would gather from this. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he's not Elijah. He's that voice, Isaiah 40 says, who came speaking, saying, crying, make straight the way of the Lord. That's his answer as to who he is. Who are you? I'm a voice. I'm simply a voice. I'm preparing the way. I am the one who comes as the forerunner. I am the one who brings that voice calling people to prepare the highways a king would need the highways prepared to get all the bumps out of the road and make the path smooth for the king to travel down. He's speaking of this in a spiritual sense. I'm calling Israel to prepare their hearts that the highway to their hearts would be receptive to their Messiah who is coming. That's how he's preparing them. That's how he's for a forerunner to Christ be prepared Israel, your Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. Get all the idols out of your heart. Get all the base things out of your heart. Repent of the, the, the bumpiness, bumpy road in your heart, all those obstacles in your heart, all those sins that so easily entangle you in your heart. Repent of those things and then give evidence of your repentance by your works. Baptism was simply a sign of that. It did not do anything except get you wet. But it was certainly evidence of a willingness to humble yourself and participate in that purification ritual. So that's, that's important. He's, that's who I am, he says. The second question, the second question you see in verse 24, it says there were some Pharisees there. And the Pharisees were your more conservative leaders within Judaism. They were the minority, only about 6,000 Pharisees. Sadducees were the major party. Pharisees, the minor party. Pharisees were more conservative, more tied into the, uh, the, the details of the law. They took the whole Old Testament. Sadducees, just the first five books pretty much, very liberal, very tied into Rome. Pharisees, very concerned about this whole issue of purification, this whole issue of who gives you the authority to do this. Notice in verse verse 25, this is the second question. Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? If you don't have any authority to do this, why are you doing it? We understand the purification rituals. We understand that people get cleansings from water and things like that. We understand even proselyte baptism where a Gentile, a Gentile, if he wants to become a Jew, would publicly get himself drenched, soaked, watered down all over his body to get rid of the uncleanness of just being a Gentile. So we understand all of that. Why are you, why are you calling Jews? Why are you calling the children of Abraham Jews? Why are you calling them to go through this Gentile ritual? He doesn't answer that question necessarily. But it's obvious that there is no distinction. Gentiles and Jews both need cleansing. I'm not saying baptism is how it ha- This kind of baptism is how it happens. But you've got to become like a Gentile, Israel. You've got to become like the Gentiles in the way you see yourself and repent of that. But that's the question that they ask him. It's the second second question. Why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You're administering these purification ceremonies. But who gives you the authority to do that? You don't have Jerusalem authority to do this. The word baptism means, folks, it means to immerse. When ships sunk, they got baptized. Immersed. In fact, the word could be that, John the Immerser. I really think, I'm going to just stick my neck out there on this one, but I really think some of the interpreters hesitated to use the word Immerser because they would offend so many who sprinkled babies. Now I've said it, now I'm going to get trouble for saying that, but I really think that is exactly why the word immerser is not used there, because that's exactly what the word means, immerser. And so they went with baptized and baptizo, but the word does mean to immerse. And then he answers the question in verse 26 and 27. John answered them saying, I baptize in water It's a a kind of roundabout here, okay? So stay with me. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Verse 27, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So he gives this verbal answer, I baptize you with water. There's someone among you. Doesn't mean he's right here with us right now, but there's someone in the land right now. In fact, he's on his way here. John doesn't maybe know that, but he's on his way here. He says, He and you don't know him. This is the reason I am baptizing. He's trying to direct their attention away from the ritual. Pharisees are all about the ritual. He's trying to get their attention off the ritual. It is he who comes after me, or but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's getting, trying to get them to look not at the ritual that he is perform, performing, but look at the Christ to whom the ritual is pointing to. This is all about John here. Pointing, excuse me, this is all about what John's ministry was about. Pointing to Christ. Not John. Not what John is even doing. But to get you to look at Christ. He's trying to intentionally here get them to think about this greater figure, Christ. Get this the ritual is just an advertisement. It's just to get you out here. It's just to draw you out here that I might point, you, point people to Christ. Stay with me. Now, on a personal level, it's not an advertisement. On a personal level, it's meaningful to everyone that would participate in it. But John says there's one who's coming that is greater than I. And he doesn't get you wet. He doesn't baptize you in water. He baptizes you in the Spirit. Look with me down at verse 31. I did not recognize him, but so that, you might, so that he might be known, shown to Israel, or manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. The purpose of me baptizing people in water is so that the Messiah could be manifested to Israel. Do you see that? I'm not saying he has got gimmick or nothing like that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it drew people. That message drew people so he could point them to the true message. He's saying to them, I baptize you for three reasons. Notice back up in 26 and 27. I baptize you to tell you that he's here. That among you stands one whom you do not know. That he's preeminent, that I'm not worthy to tie his sandals, untie his sandals. I'm, I'm, I'm baptizing because I want you, because you don't know him. You see all that in 26 and 27. Are you getting that? Do you see that? my reason for the baptism. He's kind of answering their question, why are you baptizing? I am baptizing because there's one out there that you do not know. I'm baptizing because there is one out there who is preeminent. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I don't care how many people follow me in this crowd and how popular I may be to the world. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And I. And, and thirdly, you don't know him and that is why I'm baptizing. I want you to know him. I want people to know him. I want him to be manifested, verse 31, to Israel. They're making a big deal about the baptizing. He's making a big deal about Christ. It's not about the the ritual. It's about Christ. To get your attention. Why am I baptizing? To get your attention. Get your attention that the Messiah is here. To get your attention that you don't know him. To get your attention that I am not worthy. I must must decrease and he must increase. That is why I came. I did not come to build a following for John, I came to point people to him. I want you to know the one that doesn't just baptize. We'll see that in just a moment. Baptize with water. He, he baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. You can get, you can get wet all day long, and that's not going to get you into heaven. We'll see that in a moment. So, that's the answer to the question. That's the answer to the Question. And it says in verse thirty-one or 28, we've talked about this, this all happened in Bethany, back to, I guess you're still in John 1, 28, yes, we are. These things happened, took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, okay, this next day, day one is up there beginning in verse 19, the day after that day, the next day after John has just said those things, the next day gets What? Jesus, leaving 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, arrives at Bethany by the Jordan. He saw Jesus coming to him and said this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is an incredible, theologically rich statement, isn't it not? Richard Caldwell said some interesting things. He says, we talk about Jesus a lot in our society, but we never define what Jesus we're talking about. A lot of people will talk about Jesus, they'll sing about Jesus, they'll preach about Jesus even, but a lot of people never tell you anything about that Jesus to where you don't even know if they're talking about the Jesus of the Bible or not. Because there's a lot of false Jesuses out there. All the cults have a Jesus. You realize that? Just because they use his name, don't put them in the same camp. Ask more questions. What Jesus are you talking about? Define your Jesus for me. Liberal Christianity has a Jesus. You have to define what Jesus we're talking about. Their Jesus doesn't save anybody from sin. Roman Catholicism has a Jesus. And their dogma teaches that that Jesus is not sufficient to save you. You have to add your works to that Jesus. You've got to define your Jesus when you hear it. I just thought that was an excellent point he made. Because we talk about Jesus, sing about Jesus. Everybody uh, around Easter and Christmas is all about Jesus this, Jesus that. And you just wonder what Jesus they're talking about. That's offensive language right there, by the way. That's very offensive to some people. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Think about that. That is sacrificial language. Lambs. Lambs. What do you think about when you think about a lamb? And what do you think about a lamb that's chosen by God to be a sacrificial lamb? That's divine child abuse, they would say. This, this Jesus offends the prideful heart that would have to acknowledge that I've got a sin problem that Jesus came into the world to take care of. John Baptist is very clear who Jesus is. There he is. There he is. He is out there. He's coming. And there he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Man, that is a powerful, powerful statement. Lambs were were selected to die in your place. Lambs were selected to be killed for you. Lambs were selected uh, in the temple and their blood, their blood was shed because you have sinned. Your sin placed on that lamb. Your sin separates you from a holy God. Your sin makes you an enemy of God. Your sin will bring about the wrath of God on you. And that lamb is a substitute for you. Because the wages of sin is death, and you should die, but the Lamb dies for you, in your place. This screams, this statement screams substitution. Substitution. A substitute. Look in Genesis. (laughs) Excuse me. Do you know why it was offensive to the Jews and why they really rejected it? They wanted a lion. They wanted a lion, not a lamb. We got a Roman problem here. We got a Roman problem here. We need a lion to come deal with Romans. No, you got a sin problem. You need a lamb. That's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful statement by John. Before I move to my Genesis passage, Isaiah 53, 7, just listen to this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. See, a Jew would understand lamb language. They would understand lamb talk. They saw lambs right this moment, right this moment, while this passage is taking place, lambs are being sacrificed. Priests are choosing lambs right now. John's saying, this is God's choice right here. This is the lamb that will replace all the other lambs. They understood lamb talk. Lamb, what lambs meant, what lambs pictured. That text I just quoted you from Isaiah 53, do you remember in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting there reading the scriptures he reads that passage, that very passage. He was afflicted. He was oppressed. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. He asks Philip, Philip, who's this verse talking about? Who is this talking about? This passage in Isaiah, who is it talking about? To which Philip points him to Christ. That's Christ. He's that lamb that was oppressed. He's that lamb that was afflicted. He's that lamb that was silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. All of our iniquity was placed on him, and he was judged in our place. Did I say something about Genesis 22? Turn there. Genesis 22. You know this scene. I only mention this for one reason. I want to focus in on God's chosen lamb. That's what I want to focus on. God chose this lamb. You remember the scene, it's very familiar, John Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and, and Sarah waited many, many years before they could have a child, Isaac. Isaac, my only son, Isaac, the one who was the son of promise. John, He had other sons. In terms of rank, Isaac was his son. Isaac was the one of promise. And he says to him, he says in verse 7, They're going up to Mount Moriah where he is going to sacrifice his son. I want you to sacrifice this son whom you love, this son whom I gave to you. Isaac spoke to Abraham. This is Isaac talking to his father. He said, Father, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac doesn't realize what's going on here. They're walking up the mountain. I see the wood, I see the fire. I don't see the lamb. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's verse 8. The two of them walked together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. That is one submissive teenager, I tell you. Abraham, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham raised his eyes. Verse 13 says, He looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. In the place of his son. <laughs> Abraham called the name that, that place, notice, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn to k- 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 the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations, this is verse 18, very important verse, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. How, how, how did this happen? The offspring of Abraham will bless the nations. John saw him coming, this one from Abraham. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the chosen sacrifice. Behold God's chosen sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. Hey, folks, the first time he came as a lamb, he came to be sacrificed for our sin. And that provides the way of salvation. But notice what happens the next time the Lamb comes. Turn to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. All the way from Genesis to Revelation. Beginning, now to the end. Revelation 6.15. This is a, a scene in that horrible future event called the tribulation the great tribulation in verse 15 of chapter 6 says the king's Of the earth and the great men and the commanders, this is Revelation 6.15, and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. First time he came, he came to die for sin, to die in your place for your sin, to die in your place for your sin so that you can have access in the presence of a holy God. The second time he comes, he comes as your judge. Which lamb do you want? The lamb who brings his wrath or the lamb who brings salvation? You can come to the lamb and find grace right now. You can come to the Lamb and find grace this very moment and mercy. But one day, folks, you will be hiding under the rocks from his wrath if you reject him. I just can't say that strongly enough. I fear for those who die without Christ, I fear for the wrath that awaits entering into eternity and falling to the hands of of a holy God without Christ. Some people say, go back to, go back to, uh, I jump ahead of myself too much here. Go, jump, go back to John. That's the book we're in, John. Go back to John. Verse 29. He says, Behold the Lamb of God it takes away the sin of the world. And this is an important statement. I, I realize I've alluded to it in many different ways, but let me just say this. Let me just say this to you because this is, this is where we get the wrong Jesus sometimes. This is what the death of Jesus accomplished. It took away the sin of the world. To say that Jesus died on the cross, folks, that's just not enough sometimes because you know what? A lot of people died on Roman crosses. A lot of people were executed on Roman crosses. But not everybody who was executed on a Roman cross was the perfect sacrifice in the eyes of a holy God to take away sin of the world. He died on the cross for sin. He died on the cross for sinners, that sinners might be forgiven. Some people say, no, this is what it's about. It's about the love of God. The cross is about the love of God. God loved us so much, He was willing to die for us. He loved us. He just loved us. And He forgives everybody. He forgives everybody. He loves us so much, and He forgives all of us. That's how a loving God works. And the cross just showed how much He loved us, and now He's forgiven all of us. That is not true. If that were true, then no one would go to hell. No one. And we know for a fact people do go to hell. They're already forgiven. Everybody's okay with God, because He's a loving God. And the cross, that shows how much He loved us. Then you have those who believe in the moral influence way. He was sort of our our example. Christ was a great example to us of sacrificing for others. We we need to follow his example of sacrifice. And I simply say that that we are to follow in his footsteps like that. And, and, And I just simply say to both of those, they're both true. They're both true in one sense. In Romans 5:8, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is true. The cross tells me, tells you that Christ loved me and he loved you, for God so loved the world. That is true. And I could go to husbands, love your wives. Husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Husbands sacrifice for your wives. Christ is our example of sacrifice. That's true as well. They're both love and example are true. But you see, he is the lamb of God who takes away sin. That cannot be left out of the equation. Sin is our problem. He came into the world to confront our problem. My problem, our problem is not world hunger, it's not social justice, it's not, it's, it's not racism, it's not. Those things are there, yes, but they're all there because of sin. He came to get to the root cause of everything that we sang about, inbred in us, our sin. He was the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He was that Old Testament image of the la- innocent lamb, the guilty sinner. Put your hand that all the guilt of the sinner is placed on the innocent lamb and the lamb is killed. The innocent lamb is killed. Jesus was an innocent lamb who came and took my sin and took your sin and was judged for it in our place. This doesn't teach universalism. This doesn't teach, it doesn't even talk about the extent of the atonement so much. It takes away the sin of the world. basically, uh, Basically, the only way a sinful world can be redeemed is through Christ. It's by faith in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. It's the only way both Jew and Gentile, the whole world, everyone, if you're gonna come to Christ, it's only going to be through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God Past, present, and future sins are dealt with. When you come to faith in Christ, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you have ever will commit has been judged and paid for. There is no condemnation to the believer because Jesus took away sin. You may be disciplined because you sin. You may be, you may be suffering consequences because of sin, Christian, but you will never be judged for your sin. Because Christ was the once and for all sacrifice for sin, never to be repeated again. All those other lambs had to keep; they had to keep for thousands over a thousand years. They had to keep sacrificing lambs over and over again that could never take away sin. But Christ, Hebrews ten, took away sin. He is the only answer for the world. Every race, on every country on the planet every tongue. We can't, can't lose that message, folks. Can't lose that message. We live in a world that tells us what's okay for you people at 731 North Gadsden Street to believe that, but the rest of us out here, we've got our own way to God. Or there are other people around the world that have other views or whatever. Listen, this is what God says. This is God's sacrifice. God's chosen sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that God provided to take away the sin of the world. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It deals with our greatest problem, sin, and Jesus came to take it away. Everybody wants to deal with those other secondary issues out there. The problem is sin. Tell me somebody who deals with sin. Who else? What other false teaching out there deals with sin? what other false messiah out there deals with sin most just accommodate it jesus confronts it dies for it all right 8 minutes let's go to john 130 this is he on behalf of whom i said john 130 after he says that regarding the messiah god's chosen lamb he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for, uh, for he existed before me. Well, John, I thought you were older. I thought you were older than Jesus. Six months, we're told, in fact, in Luke. And what he does here is he just points once again to the deity of Christ. He's transcendent. He, he, is, uh, he is the eternal word. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning the word was there. The, the word was the creator. We're told in John 1. He's always existed. He wasn't a created being. He's always existed. I John, I was created. Jesus not created. His 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 humanity had a beginning point. But his deity, he's always existed. He ranks before me because he existed before me. That's what John is saying in verse 30. This is the word made flesh. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. (laughs) He is the ultimate seed of woman. Remember? Through the seed of woman will come one who will crush the head of Satan. That's Jesus. Verse 31, I did not recognize him. What do you mean? He's your cousin. What do you mean you did not recognize him? Surely y'all had family gatherings. You talked about this. I think what we're referring here to here is not, did John the Baptist not know his cousin? We're talking about, I did not know exactly who I was preparing the way for. You follow me? There's nothing evidently about Christ in those 30 years that gave him any reason to believe that this was who he was going to be preparing the way for. That's all we can gather from that. I did not recognize him in the sense that I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Keep in mind what we're doing here. We're building up his testimony. We're building up what he's testifying to. Oh, I had questions. I had questions. I came baptizing in water so that he might be manifested to Israel. And then he came on the scene. He came on the scene and I called him and, and I baptized him. Verse 32, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending. I, I got a divine revelation. I, I had questions. I did not recognize him. I was not sure who I was preparing the way for, but by divine revelation, God confirmed who this was. I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and it remained upon him. Verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon me, that's him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Are you getting that? Are you seeing that? Think in terms of this is a confirmation that John is giving to us, John the Baptist is giving to us to prove the point that Jesus is the Son of God. Because you know what? Isaiah said this. Isaiah said this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon the Messiah. First, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. See, this is what John saw This is divine revelation for John. At the baptism, I saw the Spirit descend on him. The dove, symbolic of that. He said, I attest to that. God attests to that. That day, that day in the water in Jordan, God attested that this is the Son of God. I saw that. I confirm that. That this is the one, notice the end of verse 33. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I gotta say a lot about that statement. John says, all I do is get you wet. And maybe some of you have been baptized and you just got wet. Getting wet does not make you right with God. Understand that. Getting wet does not save you. It's only if you've been baptized in the Spirit. And I'll just say this to you. I don't care how many times you've prayed a prayer. I don't care how many times you have made some kind of profession of faith. If you have not been baptized in the Spirit, meaning inwardly changed and transformed from within, then you are not a Christian. If the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you, you're not a Christian. Romans, Romans 8, 9. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ indwelling you, Romans 8, 9 says, you do not belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Glorify God in your body. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells you. He He does something I could never do. He does something I could never, ever do. No man can do. He does something only God can do. He changes you and changes me. For by, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old has passed away. New things have come. And finally, verse 34. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John testified this, and John had a testimony about this. He just laid that testimony out for us in verses 19 through 34. I myself have seen and have given my testimony that this is true, that Jesus of Nazareth is God in human flesh. Romans 5.18, remember why the Jews wanted to kill him, why the Jews hated him? They hated him because he made himself equal to God. John says, that's right, he is equal to God, he is God. So John, John, who are you? You say, I'm just a faceless voice. I don't, I'm just a faceless voice, I'm just a voice. John, why are you baptizing? He says, it's just a tool to draw you to Christ, to point you to Christ. He says, my life is not my own. My life belongs to him, and my life had one purpose, and that was to testify to Christ was and to point people to him. May that be what we do, you understand? Oh my goodness, I pray that for our church that we would be those who would point others to Christ. What a great example to us of one who does that. Thank you, God, for this time this morning. Thank you for your word, your truth. We praise you and love you. God, I just pray for our church that we would be encouraged by the testimony of John and not just his words, but in his life all about pointing people to you. May we be consumed with that desire as well. May we be a church that longs to see people come into your kingdom. People that do not know. People that are walking in darkness. People that are slaves to sin. All kinds of sins. God, we're not perfect. We're sinners ourselves and we fall short in so many ways but we rejoice that we have a Savior. We rejoice that we have one who paid the penalty for our sin in our place. We, we praise you this morning that we know the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We love you and thank you for this time this morning in Jesus' name, amen.